This is episode 301 of the Read to Lead podcast. Approach social media from a customer service point of view. So what I mean is don't just hire employees who know what Instagram is and know what all these things are. That's not a good enough reason to put them on the social media response team. Hey there, it's the Read to Lead podcast. So glad you're here. My name is Jeff and it's the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and your professional growth. And one of the best ways to foster that growth, I believe, is with intentional and consistent reading. That's why each and every week I sit down with a successful and inspiring author and we dig into his or her latest book and their unique insights on leadership, marketing and sales, jobs and career, entrepreneurship, and a lot more. It's company culture and customer service getting the focus today as we sit down with Micah Solomon, author of the book, Ignore Your Customers and They'll Go Away, the simple playbook for delivering the ultimate customer service experience. I'll be asking Micah to share the steps you can take today to begin turning around your company culture, what to watch out for when leveraging technology to create a better customer experience, and a lot more. By the way, you can find out more about Micah at MicahSolomon.com. I'll spell that for you just in case. M-I-C-A-H-S-O-L-O-M-O-N.com. And also email him directly if you want to find out more about how he can help your company, Micah at MicahSolomon.com. Micah Solomon is one of the world's leading authorities on customer service, the customer experience, consumer trends, hospitality, and company culture. He is a consultant. He's a keynote speaker, trainer, and training designer in these subjects and the author of several books, one of which, fortunately for you, we're going to dive into today. He is, uh, simply put, the customer service turnaround expert. His latest book, that one we're going to be diving into, is called Ignore Your Customers and They'll Go Away, the simple playbook for delivering the ultimate customer service experience. Micah, I am delighted to have you here. I love the book. Thanks for deciding to be a part of Read to Lead. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. And um, I'm so honored you actually, I, I've quizzed you on this a couple times that I am convinced that you you read it, so you're going <laughs> to lead it, lead and succeed with it. <laughs> I did indeed read it and enjoyed it very, very much. I'm not always able to get through every single book from cover to cover, but I certainly try and, and, and got a great deal out of yours for sure. It makes me want to go back and read your other books as well. Well, thank you so much. Well, you're, you're quite welcome. I think uh, the best place to start is right at chapter one. Let's first talk about what you mean by what you talk about in chapter one, something you call automatic positivity and, and how to foster that with, within an organization. So automatic positivity can also be called a culture of yes. So this is when you walk into Nordstrom and you have two impressions, I think, what, when you walk into Nordstrom. One is, um, hmm, I'm going to pay a lot for this suit. <laughs> and, but, but the second one and the one that I want to focus on is you can just tell those people are dying to say yes to you. Mm. They're dying to say yes to you. There's a Nordstrom example in the, in the book, which is 100% true. My salesperson, whose name is Joanne Hassis, she used to sell me these beautiful, um, I'm never sure how to pronounce this, but fashionable short sleeve shirts, mm. used to sell them to me. And 
something happened with that company and Nordstrom no longer carried them and they weren't available elsewhere. But she wanted to make me happy. And the way she ha- made me happy was she found a similar shirt on the Brooks Brothers site, which, of course, makes her no money and kind of guarantees she won't make money on short sleeve shirts for a while. But, of course, I make sure to uh, buy everything else from her. So she automatically knew she wanted to get to a yes for Micah. And look how it's paid off for her. I am talking about Nordstrom and Joanne Hassis. So <laughs> look at that. Yeah. So the opposite of an expectation of yes is now I love my post office but you know sometimes I'll go into a post office and it just seems like there's one person there who just knows all the regulations which I know is important but they just they know they're going to get to a no for you so nothing against the post office but that's just an example that came to mind but if you can have a default of yes and one example I give in the book I mean I think the one from Nordstrom is the most important because it made a functional difference in the at least how well I'm dressed. But (laughs) another one is from Virgin Hotels. And the first Virgin Hotel is in Chicago. I think it's on Wabash Avenue, so downtown Chicago. And when Richard Branson and his lieutenant, who's named Raul Leal, were going to build their first hotel, they decided they were going to not make the mistakes that irritated them at other hotels Mm. they'd stayed at. And one of these was how a traditional guest room phone has 14 buttons, you know, for the bell staff and housekeeping and so forth, which I think of as 14 chances to press the wrong button (laughs) and be told, oh, you have to call that department. So they decided, you know, when they're big boys and they're going to build their first hotel, it's just going to have one cartoonishly large button that says in the virgin red color, it's going to say yes. Mm. And when I press that button, because, of course, I had to test it, (laughs) I always get a wonderful probably fake British accent. I mean, this is downtown Chicago, but a beautiful British accent. And it says yes. And then they will figure out what I need, whether it's room service or anything. uh, And they get it for me. Now, there are exceptions. Do you mind hearing the exceptions? Yeah, let's hear some of those. Yes. So here's some exceptions to yes, where I've seen it uh, misapplied. You're our guest. So we're going to let you excessively drink at our bar and then drive home. That's That's a misapplication of yes. Anything that has to do with privacy standards or safety standards. Oh, you're our guest. So it's okay if you uh, lean your chair up against the emergency exit. That would be a misapplication (laughs) of automatic yes. Well, let's say I'm a business owner and I realize that my company is not quite steeped in a culture of customer service uh, just yet. What would be some steps uh, beyond the the one you just described that would help take me toward establishing and sustaining a customer service culture? This is an important question. And there's a chapter in the book on creating a, on, on creating a culture because much as I love to come into businesses and train them and work on turning them around, there needs to be a way to sustain it. The way to sustain it, as you suggested, is through culture. So the first step is, I know this sounds silly, a little bit trite, but (laughs) you need to have a statement of purpose. And it needs to not, even though I'm a consultant, needs to not be one of these consultant-led statements (laughs) that is so long and so full of jargon and is going to be fully actionable and blah, 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 blah. And then it goes in the CEO's drawer and you never see it again. But you got a nice retreat out of it in uh, Costa Rica or wherever (laughs) and you come back. 
No one ever thinks about that statement of purpose. Again, what you want is a statement of purpose that is short enough to be memorable and long enough to be meaningful. So one of the best ones ever written, it's one of the best ones historically ever is the Ritz-Carlton. And it is, we are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. So it's an expectation of how we are going to act and how our guests are going to act. An even simpler one, which is only seven words and only one of the words is more than one syllable, is the one that guides Mayo Clinic. So Mayo Clinic is the place... You don't necessarily want to go there, though I've gone there and it was lovely, but you don't want to go there, but you want to know it's there because when something's really serious, you want to go to Mayo Clinic and people come from all over the world to go there. So the statement of purpose that guides the Mayo Clinic is seven words. The needs of the patient come first. Mm. So once you have a statement of purpose that is really meaningful, then you go from there. So what does Mayo do? They make sure that everyone understands that the needs of the patient trump everything, including, and this is really hard for organizations, hierarchy. So if you're a housekeeper, or what we used to call an orderly, and you see a patient's partner or parent or kid um, who looks distressed or even distraught, uh, you are empowered to go find out what's going on. They tell you, well, I don't think the treatment's progressing the way we were told it was. And you're empowered to say, absolutely, I can help you with that, sir or ma'am. And now you're not going to redo the surgery yourself, but you are empowered to go find someone who will figure out what's going on and assist this person. Then you got to get leadership on the same page. And when that housekeeper changes one fewer bed that day because they were spending the time and it does take time to assist that patient the leadership needs to not give them a hard time for getting a little bit of what they were assigned to do that day done but instead needs to embrace them and make them a hero for the way they assisted that customer so once you got all this ready you need to build standards, which is a different subject, but you need to build standards and service systems that will support your purpose and also make very clear, as I did with the housekeeper example, that it's okay to step outside of the daily routine if you're doing something else that has a pro-customer intention. Hmm. So you get all this right, and then how do you sustain it? Well, there are some sustaining systems that can help. The one the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company uses is one of the best, and it is a combination of a very short piece of collateral that has their key principles on it and a daily, very brief meeting where one of their service principles is discussed. So that is a way to sustain it. The ultimate way to sustain it, though, is to count on what I call positive peer pressure. So once you start to get things right in your culture and you start to hire based in part on cultural principles and you have leadership speaking about these principles, then positive peer pressure will step in. When you go into an Apple store and all these people are so excited about the products and so excited about serving you, it's partly because they were hired properly, it's partly because they were trained properly, but it's also partly because they feed on each other. It's understood that this is how you act in an Apple store. Well, you mentioned uh, the importance of hiring and finding the, the best people. Uh, talk about the self-serving bias you mentioned in chapter three that those hiring 
these folks need to be careful of. Self-serving bias, it's a term which relates to the tendency of all of us to think we are above average. You know, it's not just Garrison Keillor's Lake Wobegon children there. (laughs) All of us are above average. And this is one of the reasons that we continue to have 44,000 fatalities and heaven knows how many serious injuries on the roads every year because Mm -hmm. every one of us thinks we are an above average driver and that what we've heard about using cell phones only applies to those other doofuses out there. Mm. So that's the self-serving bias. But while not everyone can be an above average driver, Not everyone has an above average gut when it comes to hiring people. When you go to a restaurant and you see that waiter or waitress and they're doing a great job for you, doesn't mean you should hire them. You know, I've tried this at least twice. Once it meant, oh my God, she was one of the best employees I have ever hired. Her name's Stessie, if she's out there. What a great uh, waitress and so great in the context of my manufacturing business as well. But in other cases, it doesn't work. They only are situationally appropriate in what they do. So this is the self-serving bias. We all have a gut. And when people come into interviews, then it gets even worse. If you trust yourself and what you see in an interview, uh, odds are extremely good. All you're seeing is someone who interviews very well. Mm. And you also get into racial bias and cultural bias in interviews. Unfortunately, we tend to hire people who are like us, who match a vision we have of ourselves as a younger person. It's a real problem. So what you want to do instead to get away from the self-serving bias is to bring science into the hiring process. And you do this by saying, what are the traits, not the technical skills, but what are the traits? And it would be an insult to true HR professionals to say that I am an expert on this, but I can give you the concept. And the concept's really important. Stop hiring only for technical reasons. In most positions, what you mostly need are a set of personality traits. The best way to hire for these personality traits is to engage one of these really serious companies that will help you with this. And I mentioned in the book, a company called HumanX, H-U-M-A-N-E-X. Another famous one is Talent Plus or uh, the Ritz-Carlton, maybe they don't use them anymore, but um, for a long time, the Ritz-Carlton used uh, Talent Plus. I think they also use, at least for their surveys, they use Gallup. So these are serious companies that will do this for you. If you can afford it, it's a great way to go. Now, if you can't afford it, let me just give you my rule of thumb, or actually it's a rule of hand, I guess, because it's five principles. Mm -hmm. Now, if you want to remember these principles, I need you, Jeff, and anyone listening to think of a big wet dog outside of Petco. (laughs) So think of that and you'll remember my silly little uh, mnemonic, which is Wetco. W-E-T-C-O. And this is in very broad strokes what you're looking for. Very broad strokes. I just want to emphasize this. This is not 100% scientific, but this will get you close. So it's a warmth. That just means the applicant needs to like people. E is empathy. This is goes beyond liking people. It's sensing what other people 
want, at least situational empathy, which means what they will want in this situation. T is teamwork. So it's not having to do it all yourself, but it's being able to involve your coworkers in getting there. C is conscientiousness. This is a, you know, you can be like, oh, Mrs. Smith, I absolutely feel for you. I know exactly how you feel. I'm going to involve my coworkers in getting this for you. But if you don't write down or type down that you promised Mrs. Smith, you're going to get back to her on Friday, then you're not being conscientious and you're really letting her and your company down. So you need this conscientiousness. And finally, optimism. And Mm. optimism, what I am talking about, is what Marty Seligman called an optimistic explanatory style. This is, well, here's what a negative explanatory style is. Unfortunately, you can be the greatest person in the world, but if you have this pessimistic explanatory style, then a customer will bite your head off. Mm. You know, it's not fair, but it does happen. You'll think, oh, my word, I did the worst thing ever. You'll call in sick. You'll go home. You'll put the covers over your head. You won't come back into work. <laughs> like the other day, this happened to me with my book. I am so happy about my book title, which, Jeff, what's the title of my book? The title of the book is Ignore Your Customers and They'll Go Away. I'm so proud of that title. I convinced the sales team at HarperCollins Leadership to use a counterintuitive title. They like it. But one person wrote to me very well-meaning and he said, I think that's negative. I would frame it as pay attention to your customers and they'll stay with you. And so I wrote to him, I said, thank you so much. I can't change it. I didn't mean it to be negative, but you have a point. And for a moment, I wanted to call in sick myself and (laughs) fall under the covers. But then, you know, I dusted myself off. I thought, well, this dude has a good point, but... You know, I realized that yesterday I told some company that I didn't like their logo and they probably felt the same bad way that I did. And I'm going to dust myself off. I think it's a good title. Uh, Jeff Brown in the future may tell me he likes the title and (laughs) I'll be okay. So that's an optimistic explanatory style. (laughs) Love it. Love it. Well, chapter four and five are two of my favorites, Micah, uh, from the book. Uh, Chapter four, Micah gets into wow experiences. Uh, Chapter five, he challenges you as a business owner to consider working to make customer experiences what he calls cinematic and and to strive for enchantment. Michael, what does that look like in the real world? Let's talk about wow experiences. So one of the things I don't look forward to telling my clients, and I am a customer service consultant known as a customer service turnaround expert, which means that a company wants me to come in and transform their service or at least refresh it. I mean, a lot of the companies I work with actually have pretty good service already, because they know the value of it. So I come in and I help them move to the next level. So one of the things they find frustrating is that I will give them my tough love mantra that (laughs) satisfactory customer service isn't enough. Now, satisfactory customer service is often enough as far as the customer is concerned, but if you want to become their number one go-to company rather than being a commodity, then you need to get beyond satisfactory. You need to hit them emotionally. It sounds mean, doesn't it? You need to hit them emotionally. What I mean is that as human beings, we tend to tell ourselves things in stories. Now, a story can be, wow, these guys are hyper fast or wow, they're hyper efficient. But if that's what you're going for, it's hard. You're competing against Amazon and competing against Amazon is like competing against the moon launch. It's not a reasonable (laughs) model for most of us, right? So a wow experience is when service goes beyond fulfilling basic customer expectations. And it does it in a creative, 
unexpected way. So when you do this, you give customers a story they can take home with them, a positive one, hopefully. Mm. So <laughs> one of the best organizations out there for doing this is the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company. So it's not just that your key card works, which it will mm. most of the time, right? <laughs> no one's ever gotten that perfect. But what if something goes right? So here's an example in the book, and it's very elaborate. A family went to this amazing resort called Dove Mountain. It's in the Sonoran Desert in Arizona, and the Ritz-Carlton manages Dove Mountain. So this family, there were two details that the Ritz-Carlton was able to wrangle out of this family when they came. <laughs> number one, they were coming because it was one of their kids' birthday that weekend. And number two, that particular kid was a big fan of The Hobbit, both the book and the movies. A big fan. So... Nothing special happened about either of these things until the Sunday night when it was the kid's birthday proper. And it was twilight. And the sales manager, I think I was, called them and said, would you mind coming down to the lobby just, and I'm quoting, for a minute? So they're like, oh, that's a little weird, but okay, well, I'll go down there. So they come down. Like eight Ritz-Carlton employees are there. They lead them out of the building into the twilight, which is just beautiful in the Sonoran Desert. Things look a little more like shapes than they do actual visible objects. And they take them on what turns out to be a Hobbit quest. The <laughs> part of the story I think I love most is one of the one of the Rich Carlton people says, hey, what's that? What's that over there? And it seems to be the famous scene from the movie where the dwarfs go down this waterfall in barrels. Mm. That's what it looks like. But it turns out that because it's Twilight, all it was was uh, some the toy size barrels going down the water slide at a, at a, <laughs> it was that great. So each step they get new, uh, like parchment. They tell them the next thing to do. It's just amazing. So you can't do this kind of wow all the time. For one thing, guests don't always have time for it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, this was where the Ritz-Carlton knew that they had time because they're in cahoots with their own restaurant. They can make dinner happen 15 minutes later. It's not going to be a problem. And it requires all this creativity on the part of the staff. But what it also requires is leadership that says that it's not just that you're empowered to give wow service. It's your job to find opportunities mm. to give wow service. And that's what Hervé Umler, one of the founders of the Ritz-Carlton, and Horst Schultze, another famous founder of the Ritz-Carlton, both have been really nice about assisting with my books, they would say. So Hervé, Mr. Umler, will say over and over, it's your job to create wow. Mm. There's not going to be any questions asked. At the end of the day, when these employees get a fewer light bulbs changed or whatever it is, it's understood that they were creating wow. Now, there's so, it's unbelievably powerful. You don't have to do wow every single time, but it's really powerful. And these examples don't have to be over the top. Zappos has this, I think, a little bit silly story about the 10-hour phone call. Mm. But this is Zappos, this is raised as a flag high up in the air to show the extent that, that they're going to go to create wow. But the way they create wow day to day is they just allow a few extra minutes in their contact center uh, to try to make a connection with customers. This kind of wow I call everyday wow. And it, it's one of my favorite little examples in the book. A woman named Madison is on the phone at Zappos and she finds a way to bond with this older woman who 
is getting ready for her daughter, I think, her daughter's wedding. But she's having the worst time finding shoes because she has narrow feet. So Madison just immediately connects on the narrow feet. She says, oh, narrows are the worst. They're so hard to shop for. My aunt has narrow feet. And I swear, every other time we talk, that's what we talk about. <laughs> so they bond over this little thing. And then Madison reassures her and they work together on the website, screen sharing, I believe. And she finds her some shoes that she actually <laughs> likes for the the wedding. So that's an example of everyday wow. And it's probably more applicable than anything else to your listeners. Mm. Well, it's safe to say that over the last dozen years, uh, Mike, uh, customer service has been impacted by technology and social media. Uh, what have you learned in your experience, things that we need to watch out for when it comes to leveraging technology for, for better customer service experience and then just surviving and, and, and navigating social media? as well. So technology is super important. If you are considering or even fearing right, uh, artificial intelligence uh, being involved in customer service, it's not something to think of as either or. Artificial intelligence is best thought of as being what I call triangular, to take a triangular approach. And this is going to wear out my understanding of geometry. I'm going to use this word I don't think I've used in a decade, which is vertices. There are obviously three <laughs> vertices in a triangle. And at one vertex, <laughs> there is the customer. Another vertex, there's the human employee. And the third vertex is the AI. So mm. a customer can get to us through the AI, which might be a chat bot, or it might be a dynamic AI uh, enhanced search engine on a website, which is much better than the old FAQs that were never <laughs> maintained, right? They were the like not very frequently asked questions. So the customer gets to us through through AI, but then they often want to talk to a human agent. The human agent should be awesome. They should be very well trained. They ideally should have read my book or you should have brought me in to train them. But even at that point, when they're talking or messaging directly with the customer, they're not on their own. The technology can continue to help them. Now, what you want to watch out for is keeping technology below eye level. So unfortunately, I went to a hotel, an excellent hotel that had this very innovative idea of giving all their employees iPads. And their goal was, we're going to bring the humans out from behind the registration desk. We're going to walk mm. them right to the human being, the human guests, and we're going to serve them right there. And it's all great conceptually. But what they failed to do was to keep the technology below eye level. These employees weren't well trained enough in using their iPads. I mean, obviously using an iPad is trivial, but in the software that was running on the iPad to keep from staring at it the whole time they were checking in the guests. So keep the te technology below eye level. What's better is rather than bringing the technology to the forefront, a better experience is a traditional hotel where the employees are extremely well-trained on the tech and are able to keep it below eye level so it only positively affects the customer experience. Another thing to understand is that one human interaction may be enough to set the tone. This can obviously be negative, but mm. can also be positive. So why do we still have bank branches? Well, you may be wondering. <laughs> the reason we still have bank branches is that studies show that if a customer meets with a financial advisor or meets with 
the manager of their account. Just once, it puts a face and a voice to that account. And I have seen this happen with my own Schwab account where I've met my financial advisor literally once, but seemed like a good fellow and his team members were great. And I don't need to drive to Orlando every time to interact with them. In fact, I'll probably never have to do that again. But now that I know them, I feel comfortable with Schwab. Zappos, you saw that on the phone, they obviously can't be talking for 23 minutes or let alone 10 hours with every customer. In fact, most customers do not order over the phone, obviously. They're a big e-commerce play. But those phone calls that they do have are enough to make the connection and then you can let technology do the rest. I think you said social media. So here are five, I think it's five principles. I'm sorry these don't spell anything cute. (laughs) But the first one is to approach social media from a customer service point of view. So what I mean is don't just hire employees who know what Instagram is and know what all these things are. That's great, but that's not a good enough reason to put them on the social media response team. They should also be good, solid, well-trained customer service professionals. Number two would be take an informal tone when you respond. Mm. No one's expecting you to sound like a lawyer. Uh, In some situations, you do actually want your responses to be legally vetted, but you shouldn't sound like a lawyer. Number three, and this might be the most important of all of them, respond immediately. I worked with an otherwise great company, I mean, great company, except that they had in their standards, we strive to respond to everything on the internet within 48 hours. <laughs> I said, oh, 48 hours, that's interesting. When, when when was this standard written? And they said, oh, not too long ago, 2011. And I was like, well, okay, well, maybe in 2011, that was okay, but Right now, 48 hours is 36 years in internet time. (laughs) You got to respond more quickly. Even if your response is, I need to look into this issue further. Then don't bring additional negative publicity by responding aggressively or defensively to a post that you don't like. This is called the Streisand effect. It's from when Barbara Streisand sued a photographer who I had a helicopter take a picture of all of the backyards of rich people who were close to an eroding cliff in Southern California, or I guess all of California. Now, Barbara didn't care about all the other people with backyards. She cared that this person took a picture of her yard. So she sued him. He didn't respond the way she was hoping, which would be to take the picture off of his site. He responded by having t-shirts made and saying, what's Barbara afraid of? And promoting his cause, which was the California Coastal Erosion Project. I'm not saying he was right. I'm not saying she was right, but it is called the Streisand effect. And it's often what will happen if you're overly defensive online these days. The final principle is reach out to the source of the negative social media directly. You may want to reach out publicly. That may actually be the only way you can reach out to them at first until they follow you. But once you do that, try to switch to a private channel. You can't force the customer to do this, but if you can pull it off via direct DMs or ideally the phone, then that's a way to work everything out before you go public again. Well, I have a couple of questions, uh, Mike, I want to get to that aren't directly related to the book. Anything else from the book you want to make sure we walk away with before I jump into that? 
I have put everything I know into this book, and then I've put it into the chapter summaries for those of you who don't want to read whole chapters or don't want to take your own notes. And then I even have reading group questions at the end of each chapter. And I got the idea for that because when I used to work in the corporate world, or I mean, moderate-sized business, we did have an executive reading group, and it was our book club, and so something like that would have been useful. The other thing I'm going to say that wasn't directly related to anything you brought up, consider issues of diversity and inclusion. Mm. I touched on this briefly when I told you not to hire on your gut because you're going to end up hiring people who are similar to, to you or to how you were when you were younger. So consider issues of diversity and inclusion. And there's two sections on this in the book. They're not written by me, though I was involved in soliciting them. One's written by uh, a woman who was the first female mayor of Las Vegas. Uh, the other is written by a gentleman who's very involved in inclusion in a corporate setting. Mm. So those are just a couple of other things I would mention. Excellent. Well, what about the books that you have read, um, apart from the ones you've written, uh, would you say have impacted your career? How would, how would you describe those books, how they've impacted you? Uh, what, what books come to mind when you think about two or three that uh, really stand out? A couple of business books that have mattered a lot to me. There's a great book. It's called Growing a Business. It's by a wonderful gentleman named Paul Hawken, H-A-W-K-E-N. That mattered a ton to me when uh, I was just starting out, and I even reread it every few years. There's a great recent book, and this is by my same publisher, HarperCollins Leadership, but it's called Building a Story Brand, and it's kind of a silly word, story brand. That kind of turned me off briefly, but it's great. It's really great. And it takes you from having your pitch being you-centered to having it being the customer-centered. It's a really good concept. I will say, however, what he doesn't talk about is something, Jeff, that you and I do, which is you know, bringing in a little personality. I mean, if you're Oprah, obviously neither of us is Oprah, but people love Oprah mostly because she's customer-centered. She's extremely customer-centered, mm. but at least 40% because she is also herself, right? She's herself. So there are certain kinds of businesses, especially smaller businesses, where you need to balance the building a story brand method with the fact that the story is partly about you. But that's a great one. Another book that is similar to mine and is was very inspiring to me is Danny Meyer's Setting the Table. And he's this brilliant master of hospitality and restaurateur in New York and now internationally as well uh, with Shake Shack. But his principles are, are wonderful and it's great to hear the story of how he made it as well. But don't just read business books. I mean, one of my favorite books is uh, In Search of Lost Time by Proust because of not just the Madeline scene, though that's a great one, but how he looks at everything just in this way that... You have to either be completely out of your mind or absolutely brilliant, or in his case, maybe both. So uh, read books that aren't just business books as well. Well, uh, you obviously do a lot of public speaking. Uh, we mentioned you're a keynote speaker, lead a lot of training and workshops. As someone who has had a chance to get good at that over the years, Micah, what would you say are your tips for, for getting good at it, for delivering a talk that's impactful? Becoming good at speaking is is really difficult. It's a... It's, Part of it is having 
a personality for it. But I will tell you, you can be an introvert or at least you can have social anxiety. And those are actually two different things. But even if you're an introvert or if you have, and I have this social anxiety, you can be a keynote speaker. And this is why. Just think of a professor. Professors are great public speakers. They got to be now because of, right? Because of ratemyprofessor.com. So they're excellent public speakers. How can they pull that off? Because everyone knows their role in a classroom. They understand that the person behind the desk is there to teach us and I've got to say to entertain us as, as well. So you have a role when you're on stage and the audience mostly wants you to succeed. Mostly, not always. So they're not expecting you to be up there and be a Shakespearean actor. Actor. I mean, I think that would be great. That's not what they're looking for. You want to seem authentic, but then there are tricks that you need to know. And one is to have the references right. So I've spoken to NASCAR type audiences and and made jokes about, you know, five star spas and that just was the wrong frame of reference. So these cues to get them on your side are important. I mean, one of the simple ones is you're not going to change what you talk about. I mean, I always talk about either customer service or company culture. But the actual examples I use, I do try to interview one or two members of the upcoming audience so I can use examples related to, I don't know, the software that they're interested in or whatever it is. There's a lot of other pointers, but those are a couple. And one of the things you can't do is you can't use You can use PowerPoint, but you can't use it in the way the engineers who (laughs) created PowerPoint expected you to use. You cannot use it in a bullet point manner. You need to use it to convey emotion. And, and this is my trick for those of us without great memories, you can also use it to cue yourself. You have the picture of the cute little doggy. You know, you're going to talk about Wetco, right? So (laughs) you can use it to cue yourself, but you can't use it to have all the bullet points on the screen because then you're not speaking, you're delivering a document. And that's not what public speaking is about. Well, the book, again, is called Ignore Your Customers and They'll Go Away, the simple playbook for delivering the ultimate customer service experience. Thank you again, uh, Micah, for being here. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, Jeff. That was one of my favorites ever. At the show notes page created just for this episode, you'll find a link to Micah's website, his book, and the books he recommended. All that can be found at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 301 for episode 301. Again, the best way to get a hold of Micah is Micah at MicahSolomon.com. M-I-C-A-H-S-O-L-O-M-O-N.com. And to reach me with comments, questions, suggestions, or feedback, it's Jeff at ReadToLeadPodcast.com. I was initially dismayed when I saw a recent review of the podcast start with loyal but losing patience. And then I realized that's actually the username of the person leaving the review. They call Read to Lead an essential podcast for anyone interested in leading and learning. Thank you, loyal but losing patience. I'm glad you feel that way. Well, that does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time for the next episode of the Read to Lead podcast. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. We'll be right back.